Hi folks and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. A little bit of housekeeping before we kick off. We are live on the 28th of September in the Sugar Club on Leeson Street in Dublin City Centre. Tickets are available now on eventbrite.ie and the link for that is at the bottom of this podcast that you're listening to right now. And if you're a member at patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack, there is a discount code waiting for you in your email notifications. If you're not a member, please join us. It's a price of a fancy cup of coffee and a scone once a month to you. The easiest bit of activism you can do. You'll be helping to carve out that little bit of space that this left-leaning, independent, ad-free, sponsor-free podcast platform needs. And by paying it forward, you're keeping it free for everyone. So take a minute and click the link at the top of the podcast. This is patreon.com forward slash tortoise And join us for a month. That's all I'm asking you to do. Thanks for listening. Thanks for the support. Thanks for liking, sharing and recommending this to people. I'm shutting up now. Enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Echo Chamber Podcast. My name is Tony Groves and Martin, we're back talking to one of our favourite friends. But, but how are you anyway, Martin? You're looking a little bit more peakish. You know, you, there's something. Is that just... Uh, it's I, sunlight, Tony. I'm exposed to sunlight. That's what's going on, you know? It has me weirded out. Like there's almost, there's a, there's a hue to you where you look, you know, you always have that sort of, Weak, dead, weak, old, dead look to you now. You look Thanks, like, Tony. Yeah, you yeah, have yeah. that standing in a corridor <laughs> waiting for school to restart. Yeah, with. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> leave, leave that. Leave. I will, we will not have that man's name said on the podcast <laughs> ever. Um, but I, I did. I, I will say though. Speaking of um, men, uh, mediocre men with, with very little talent, it was quite interesting today to see. There was a headline, Martin, saying that um, Ryan Tuberty's been offered a mega book deal by Classic Hits. Uh, 4FM, which is the same crowd who do, I think it's Q, Q102 and Radio Nova and all that. But anyway, the, the Megabucks deal would actually mean you'd have to work twice as much for, for half as much money as he's getting from RTE. So it just shows you. like. But if you get someone to write the headline, it'll, you know... The, not you, would, the, you, you would think, though, you know, when you had a relative that, that was high up the ladder, that high up the ladder, that you'd be secure for life in a job. He should, you know he, I mean? he should, he should he is secured. Hope he, if, hope the money he was getting, he's not, if he's not secure for life after being paid half a million a year for as long as he was, well, that's on him. Anyway, look, we've gone well off topic. We're delighted to be rejoined back on the podcast for the first time in, in a few weeks by our friend in, uh, our friend in Denver, Colorado, Professor of Economics, and uh, I w- I'm going to say it's probably listener, fa- firm listener favorite, Constantine Gordiev. Constantine, how are you keeping? Good, good, Tony. Thanks. Yeah, it's great to see you both. You know, I mean, it's nice to see that there is some sunlight. Yeah, um, in Dublin, definitely. Yeah, now it's only there, between, you know, it. it's just between the showers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're putting. I'm putting the, you know, the putting the washing out is as dan- is living dangerously these days. You know, <laughs> will I put it out and how long will I get it dry before I have to bring it back in? Um, I hear it was a terrible summer, but you know what's funny as well. You know, for all the you know, there is certainly an increase in terms of the average temperatures and things like that. But we've had a summer also, which is kind of really um, surprisingly wet uh, here in Colorado. And surprisingly, um, the temperatures are not reaching the peaks. Mm. They are on average higher, but the peaks of kind of 110 degrees, 108 degrees, we're not reaching at all. So it's very strange weather. And I, and just, I didn't, uh, we've, we've often done this where we end up talking a little bit about climate um with yourself because you're a keen you're you're a lover of nature that's that's one of your real things you love being out in outdoors you're a real outdoorsman are we are you observing changes in the kind of the beginnings or the shiftings of the seasons because we're seeing it here now definitely where there are there there are flowers in my garden that aren't supposed to be there right now Constantine. and i'm seeing this with evidence of my own eyes 
Yeah, absolutely. So like uh, talking about how wet it has been here in terms of the summer, last week, myself and my uh, mountaineering partner, we were up, you know, climbing in the mountains and I came back unexpectedly completely with a whole, you know, bunch of uh, mushrooms. Um, they are usually seasonally not, should not be here because it should be dry, but it is so wet up at the high elevations that, you know, they're pretty much, you know, thriving there right now. Um, in California, what we're having in terms of the, um, change in seasons, the seasons have changed to the extent where there used to be two rainy seasons in the central California along the coast of California as well, up to the north all the way. And the first season, rainy season, would have been somewhere around September, October. That has completely disappeared over the recent years. And everything got compressed into just winter season. So even though rainfall might be similar, though it is, of course, lower, but it still might be similar. It's much more intensive as well. So you see these changes like that locally everywhere. Yeah, no, it's 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 definitely playing it in front of our eyes. So we, you know, and when you hear the warnings, um, they're not about you know what's going to happen in the future. Like Martin, you're a big you're a big uh, advocate for it. Like knowing what's happening in terms of the the um, the the currents that 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 service Ireland keep us cool and temperate. In the, you know we don't have deep freezes. Maybe when we have them, they're once every decade or so. But potentially, Martin, you know, well, there's that heat heat. Uh thing going on in the seas at the moment and nobody knows what the consequence we've never seen it before so we don't know what the consequences of it are and it could be a lot quicker than people expect but ireland now has two seasons we have a cold wet season and we have a warm wet season well i think we just give up with everything else that's it we, martin wants us to move into the providing water to the rest of the world oh, he is right yeah. It's 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 going to be a huge business. It's going to be the the future wars are not going to be over salt like we used to have them or oil. It's going to be over water. Water is huge. We should important. be building reservoirs left, right, and center. We should be bottling it or piping it and sending it to the rest of the world. If we're we going have to, to be have... careful with that, because the rest of the world is tearing down the dam right now and reducing the res reservoirs because of the other impacts that it has. And in Ireland, yeah. it's because of our ecosystems are very sensitive. Uh, for migratory fish, um, you know, it's kind of the idea of uh, building a lot of reservoirs up in the mountains and, you know, trying to capture the water. You have to be careful how you do it. But generally speaking, yes, we should be. <laughs> Look, yeah, we've yeah. we've gone well off topic. We would, by the way, folks, we meant to talk about housing today. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, we can talk about housing. <laughs> oh, no, but I, I want to get, I, I don't know if you, um, uh, our my my friend um, Orla Hegarty wrote today in the Irish Examiner about how the LDA is shaping up to be another bailout for developers. I I watch with with horror as we see the government now saying, "Well, we're going to um, pay the developers to finish these built-to-rent apartments, and we'll put a backstop on them that they can't sell them. We'll buy them at this X price." Um, we thought Nama was bad, Constantine. This is Nama 2.0, in my opinion. You were you were at the coalface and you saw how this was playing out in our last property boom. It's a completely different bubble now, but it's a, it's also another bailout. Well, it's a bubble without the delivery of homes. Uh, back in a original Celtic Garfield property boom, at least we were delivering homes. We were building something to the tune of 60,000, 65,000 units. Uh, now we are not building anything close to it. And it's funny that you mentioned NAMA. I mean, like housing is the problem in Ireland that is going to probably persist beyond the moment when we finally solve the climate change. That's how bad it is. 
And it all relates to banks, it all relates to policies, it all relates to the dysfunctionality of politics of Ireland as well. You mentioned NAMA. Yep, the days of NAMA are coming back at us and they're actually still biting us, yes? Uh, we have to go back uh, to those days to think through housing conundrum. Uh, so if you look at starting with 2010, U.S. is coming out of the global financial crisis and the Great Recession is over officially in the U.S., um, we in Ireland, alas, of course, uh, had NAMA, IMF, and the EU. Um, and as a result of that, uh, we have the shrinking of the population for the short period of time, reduction of the pressure in terms of the construction demand and so forth. But basic terms is over the decade of 2011-2020, we built circa 140,000 homes. Of these, only around 60,000 uh, were for sale. The rest are for rent. And our estimated demand over the same decade is about 550 to 600,000 homes. So going into the pandemic, we have accumulated gap of about 410, 460,000 units that we should have supplied. And at the same time, our demographic is shifted more in favor of home ownership rather than rents. So if you sum this all up, to move the needle, Ireland needs to build around 45,000 units a year of housing just to catch up with current dynamics, and also another 40,000 uh, you know, roughly units uh, in order to catch up with the losses accumulated over the period of NAMA slash recovery from the global financial crisis. That puts us at 85,000 units per annum. You need about 10 billion in just house construction finance annually to see the light. And by, by the way, I'm saying to see the light, that's to see reduction in overall pressures in terms of the housing demand relative to supply by around, around 2035. So a decade from now, more than a decade. decade so so a, de a, decade, a decade of still continued pain just to get to, to recoup the losses yeah. that, that took place between 2009. Well, 2008 right, all went yes. off a cliff, yeah. 2009. And and, yeah. and of course, you know, to keep up with the demographic changes that we have. Absolutely, right now. yeah, like so a growing you, population and uh, and and a country. Yeah, that's... and if you factor it, what holds us back today, none of that has to do anything with the completion of the you know build to rent type of the apartments. Okay, it really has to do uh, with banks and the fact that there is no finance going on into the um, construction sector that there is no construction sector effectively alive outside of Dublin, Cork territory or areas. All of the development has been focused in those two cities and outside of those two cities, banks are not lending for the development. But also on top of that, you also have to recognize that our planning and zoning um, is a basically disaster territory. So to give you an example, I'm aware painfully of out in the West, a site for about 200 units, which has been zoned for residential, the builder and the developer are there, they are ready to build and all, and the um, local authorities are proceeding to dezone the land. So when you think about this, when you think about the land banks that are out there, when you think about the you know brown sites that are out there, especially in urban locations, and when you think about the demand that is latent sitting there, but not being fulfilled in terms of the local development, smaller scale development, smaller towns development and rural development in Ireland, it's a disaster territory completely. None of that is going to be resolved by the government either paying money to the developers to build, nor is it going to be resolved by taking over units that are in the process of construction and converting them from one use to another, because you're not adding actual net units. Okay. Also, 
The other question is, of course, a lot of what we are currently building using the vulture funds, a lot of what we are currently building for social housing is not really adequate. It's not adequate in terms of housing families. It's not adequate to meet the demand for growing families into the future. It is not adequate for meeting the demand for where people actually want to live. So as a result of that, the entire housing market in Ireland is utterly, completely, totally dysfunctional. You can have Pol Pot and Mao together running around the entire country with nationalization plans uh, for housing, and it's still not going to resolve the problem. We have to build. In order to build, we have to have a healthy development and construction sector. Sooner or later, that pent-up demand, Constantine, that pent-up demand has to have an impact sooner or later. Yep, it is. If you look at the good old 1914 uh, to 1917 dynamics in the Russian Empire, it was well described by the two questions, yes, the two questions raised by the revolutionaries at the time. Who is to be blamed and what is to be done? And we are currently at the stage of who is to be blamed. And of course, Lenin was famously put together those two dictums, basically said when you have two of them coming together at a large level of the population, are raising those two questions at the same time, you're going to have a revolutionary situation. We're going to have next election in Ireland pretty much fully focused on the housing markets because it impacts everyone. We have now families in a middle kind of, if you want, age category where they have to sustain their children in their homes as well. They don't really want to. They want to retire. They want to move on. Um, they want their kids to move on. They want to see their kids progressing socially, and they are struggling with that. Their children, of course, are also struggling themselves. So you have a cross-generational impact of housing crisis that is happening in Ireland. We now have multinational companies are talking about the fact that this is the biggest constraint on their operations in Ireland. Like, hello. I mean, like, how hard it is to solve the problem of building flipping homes. But we're going to take you back to a phrase, stakeholder society. Now, if there are a generation, and it's nearly two generations now of young people who have no state. Martin, it's actually three now. We're moving into the third generation. Yeah. We've gone from, we've gone from, we, we've moved forward a decade in the last five years, and we were playing catch up in terms of how bad things could get. But go ahead. Sorry. So when you have that group of people, and it is the uh, different to America in that the Trump people are all big, fat, useless lumps. But in Ireland, the stakeholders who are being excluded are the movers and shakers, are the young people who can change a country. Do you think that should have an impact? Of course it should. But it should. But the problem is that we are confusing in Ireland the stakeholder society that you are describing pretty well uh, with our traditional social partnership model, which is basically a status quo preservation model whereby the social partners, once they allocated the seat at the table, are fighting tooth and nails to keep their own seat at the table and not allow anyone else. So stakeholder society in Ireland started in 1997, probably around there. Um, right before that as well with the Rainbow Coalition and so forth, yeah? But, I mean, it, it probably actually makes sense uh, back in those days because the stakeholders who were allowed to social partnership table back then were genuinely representative of the society. But over more than a decade since then, over the period from, say, 30 years onwards, um, that stakeholder society ossified, and it yeah. became a social partnership society where you have senior civil servants, senior, if you want, um, generations, and also the generations of the uh, or, you know, traditional, if you want, um, social structures representatives 
who are controlling the entire division of the economic pie. Younger generations are left out as a result of that. Every stakeholder society requires constant renewal. How to balance, how to achieve that, we don't have an answer to it. As political economists, we used to think that the market was effective at that. Now nah, we know it isn't, okay? Uh, as you know, some socialists used to think that the state is effective at that. Now, nah, state is also not effective at that as well, it turns out. So we right now don't have a mechanism. How do we renew that stakeholder society to become genuinely representative of the dynamic society, especially for Ireland, it's a big issue, yes? If you are sta- talking about stakeholder society in Italy, you're talking about fairly stable distribution of demographic power in terms of wealth, in terms of jobs, in terms of professions, in terms of everything because uh, there hasn't been really renewal of society in terms of the demographics there. In Ireland, of course, the young demographics... Yeah, we, 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 we're completely... We're, we're, we're an outlier in, in the EU now as well, and we, have we to, are. and we have to face up to that. But that's actually a good thing. Constantly. I agree with you. It's a fantastic thing. Mm. But when it comes to policy formation mechanism, when it comes to political representation, it turns out that that fantastic thing in that makes our economy more dynamic, more promising, our society more dynamic, more promising, faster development and so forth, it all becomes all of a sudden a problem because the political system is not designed to cope with that. It's not designed to address this change. Uh, but that's It's not to say that the Irish political system in some way is utterly, completely, fundamentally dysfunctional. It's true of every political system. The United States is a great example of that as well. Demographic we'll change we'll from one there. generation <laughs> to another. You know, it's exactly what, you know, Martin referred to, that there is, you know, this Trumpkins group, there is this, you know, if you want uh, Bernie Sanders's kind of wing of the Democratic Party, there are extremes, there's polarization and so forth. All of that is an outcome of change. Uh, that change that has not been shock-absorbed or in accommodated through the traditional policy processes. In Ireland, we have always looked at emigration as that tap where we get rid of that, what you call the, the vital blood of your economy, the vital blood of your society. We've always drifted away and we ended up with a stagnated society for 50 years because of it. it my view is that all policy in Ireland is geared toward making younger people emigrate because they don't know any other policy. Do you think there's anybody who can relearn policy in a way that's more inclusive? Well, that's the whole question of, you know, if you keep the young people in the country, sooner or later there will be a critical mass of them and they will be able to actually bring that change, to force that change to happen. If we keep sending the young people, and especially the selection biases actually is much more insidious than just young people being emigrated, yes? Mm-hmm. It's the young people who are actually having an ambition and acquire and invest in themselves who are emigrating, whether they invest in their skills as carpenters or they invest in their skills as medical doctors, is kind of perhaps, you know, um, you know, kind of perhaps a secondary issue, really. Uh, it's more important issues that they, they're people who do not come from the good, so-called good rugby schools, mm-hmm. uh, who are like Ryan Torbity, born with a silver spoon in their mouths. Uh, those stay in Ireland. And as a result of that, the entire system becomes corrupted towards or altered. But, towards but that's, but that's where we, 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 we have a huge problem with that because it's, it's an element of this, you know, where people are now in that, that generation are now between 25 and 35, maybe have moved out and then moved home again because they couldn't afford a home or 
you know, they, they and they have reasonably paid jobs for the most part. And, and but we're still now looking at them going, you're earning good money. You can't afford you can't afford actually um, to buy. You can't afford Dublin rents currently. And um, you're being like even, you know, it's problematic when the Taoiseach, Leo Varadkar, 13 years into, into government is saying we need to renew the social contract. You know, like that's that's a that's a scary sentence for a guy who like because because you got to remember where he came from, whereby you know his his mentality was about you know the, the trickle down effectively was his was his ide- ideological um, basis for for what he wanted to do. But when we come back to so let's just come back to housing as a thing. So obviously the shortfall needs to be addressed. It, it's going to take time. There will be, as Martin says, a political. Um, price for the failure to actually address this but the other issue that i that i found interesting is and neither of you um have, have touched on it is that when we discuss it now like we've done in the last few days we've, i've been watching the media more closely and i'm sure you get to see it from afar constantine anybody who's having the conversation like one we're having now and, and i hate to include you in this constantine but they'd call you uh they're hard left. They're far left. They're they're not admitting that. <laughs> but this but this is my point. The level of our ambition has gone back to you know that meme where it says just came from the better things aren't possible rally. You know every everybody holding hands saying what do we want incremental change. When do we want at some point in the future? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And, the ambition is lacking. Yes. Yes. And like in the United States, uh, labels come out right away because when the center fails to hold, when the um, traditional mainstream politic fails, the only thing that is left for the establishment is to resort to labels. I mean, to call me hard left, you know, fine, look, I mean, you know, people used to call me hard right. Some people recognize that I got probably so hard right that I became hard left. Um, you know, and by then, you know, I kind of convinced I, I, a lot of people I, I, that I'd I'd have, you know? I'd have said <laughs> you were a libertarian when we first met. You know, and that's that's exactly the point. Yes, I mean, like, what what label applies? I talk to my children, for example, and they don't use labels. They don't refer to isms. Um, they are not really recognizing the necessity for dividing people into the right or left. They're looking for the solutions. They want to see solutions. The teenagers today in America, as well as in Ireland, are talking about the need for solutions, answers, not the ideologies, not for these kind of labels. So, I mean, setting all of that aside, the problem is, of course, in Ireland is that, as you mentioned, you know, Leo Varadka came into power on a promise of effectively underpinning the status quo. But that promise, however, was marketed as the um, kind of rejuvenation, the younger Tishak, the new blood, the new issues addressing the modern and more kind of, if you want, younger Ireland. And now, look, I mean, it's two parties that have ruled Ireland forever, that have offered in the past they offered some policies they offered some solutions there were some good things that they did some bad things that they did but by and large they haven't really provided any vision or any thinking in terms of the what the future of ireland should look like and well, so, it's certainly not since the era of what we would call modern day say thatcherism or or yeah. um that that that, el- that element of what we maybe we would term go back to labels neoliberalism they certainly haven't they they've literally abandoned the concepts of um a just society in 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 ways by outsourcing much of this to the market forces but they also abandoned the market so that's the the whole point is that you, you mentioned thatcherism thatcherism reaganism they were perhaps you know i would make an argument that from the some point of view they were necessary um, evil in order to correct the kind of, if you want, 1960s and 70s 
um, if you want, uh, drift, especially in Europe, towards the uh, too much state-centric development models and economic models. Fine, okay? Like everything else is cyclical in the economy, this type of an approach to the you know politics of economics also should be cyclical as well. It should be healthy to go from one side to another without reaching the extremes. The problem is that that became ossified. And then as it became ossified, we started coming with the problems such as the social partnership was designed to solve. And once we started imposing the social partnership onto neoliberal model, it mutated this kind of, if you want, pro-market capitalism away from pro-market towards some sort of the state-centric capitalism, okay? Now, I mean, we can talk about the past as much as we want to. The reality is that has to change. It doesn't work anymore. And we know if if it worked in the 1990s to secure, for example, industrial peace for a period of time, perhaps it worked then. Let historians deal with that. We know that doesn't work anymore. The objective of industrial peace today is utter and complete nonsense. It's not even necessary anymore. In fact, we probably should have should have healthy and contrarian trade unions willing to stand up for the demands of the actual workers and the needs of people who are working. Um, I'm saying that as you know, a person who used to be labeled as a hard right. Why? Because there has to be a balance. If you don't have a balance of representation of different parts of the economy and society, you're going to have an absolutely dysfunctional economy in the end. And this is what we ended up with. We now have the multinationals-driven economy in which the if you ask the local businesses, and I don't mean the unproductive businesses that are likes of the accountancy firms, but we're talking about productive businesses that actually employ people, that export things, that produce things that the rest of the world wants to buy from Ireland. If you ask those businesses, does the current government represent their interest? The answer is resoundingly absolutely no. Yeah. If you ask people with high human capital investments, highly educated professionals whose skills are tradable across the border in Ireland, not tradable across the borders of the Department of Finance versus HSE, but actually across the border, um, you know, if you ask them, does the current government represent the market forces that represent you? The answer is resoundingly no. If you look at anything other than the big pillar banks and the multinational companies, and even they're starting to grumble as well now, um, there is no market economy in Ireland. No. We're not a market economics. This is not a neoliberal you know, paradise that the employers it, 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 love. Even, even in retail banks, it's an oligopoly now. You know, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's dolly. It's worse than an oligopoly, you know? I mean, well, I think oligopoly was the original, uh, you know, uh, kind of vision circa 2009. No, no, so, eleven. So, it became a duopoly. Yeah, du- well, it is a duopoly, and I want to be very clear for what I mean for benefit listeners. AIB and Bank of Ireland are now today announcing that they're increasing their interest rates on regular savers accounts as if it's going to save everything. That means that they're not really offering great rates on fixed terms, Constantine, as you'll know, or on lump sums. It's on people who can afford to put away a couple of hundred quid a month and they're going to give them 3%. That's a market leading rate. It's absolute piecemeal horseshit. And we've been down this road before. Sorry, Martin. Yeah, I just wanted to say, Constantine, when when Fine Gael came to power uh, 12 years ago, um, there were only a couple, there was 400 and something children. But anyway, the increase in child homelessness since they came to power is 837%, which is a success, huge, huge increase. They've talked now, or, or the, the latest Minister for Finance has talked about going in and penalizing the banks. Now, before that, we had Pascal who was going to admonish the banks and uh, 
we have this rhetoric comes up again and again and again that finance ministers are going to in some way rein in the banks. But it's a completely false narrative. They have never done so. They have no intention of ever doing so. Yet we have a press that constantly reports this as some kind of valid fact, rather than saying, here's more of the same bullshit we've had for the last 11 years. How do you break this? Irish banks are probably the most amazing beast on the face of Earth, probably since the times of dinosaurs. So think about this, yes? Remember this dictum that is usually misattributed to Einstein, yes, that insanity is repeating the same mistakes and expecting different results. Well, okay, Irish banks are effectively secured for life with that dictum. We were told in 2000 that Irish banks were to be doing their bit for the real economy, yes? But for that, they needed minimum regulation or lower regulation barriers. So we got them low regulations, and they did little for the actual economy, but produced a lot of land into Bertie's developer policy. Yes, the rest of us paid the price in 2008-2010. We were then, in 2008-2010, told that Irish banks are standing ready to do their bid for the real economy. That's Brian Lenihan. Remember mm-hmm. that? Uh, but they need cheap funding, so low interest rates. They need cash from the ECB. They need NAMA to resolve their bad books, and they need tax breaks. We gave them all of that and more, and they, well, did nothing for any real economy. Instead, they loaned money. Um, uh, sorry, instead, they moaned about low interest rates, NAMA and ECB, and stopped funding all house building. So we were next told that the Irish banks are standing by, ready to do their bid for the real economy as soon as interest rates do rise and they can be profitable so that they can lend to the real economy. The ECB jacked up the rates. The banks became very profitable. They are now the envy of the markets, apparently, according to the Irish Times and all the rest of them. And there is no lending to the real economy still. So the whole charade is not about doing the same thing and expecting different results. It is rather at this stage in Ireland, is, you know, if you want to beg for an analogy, um, uh, of us, as taxpayers shoving instruments of increasing complexity at a pack of warthogs enjoying a mud bath and complaining loudly back that the pack isn't self-combusting with the perfect rendition of Beethoven's ninth. <laughs> I'm gonna give I'm gonna give you a really simple one. Yeah, the, the guy walks into the walks into the play the blackjack table, throws up, says, I put all my money on on uh, on on this, slides his chips in, loses. Um, turns around to you, takes your money, puts all the money down, wins, and says, "Hey, listen, isn't that great? Win <laughs> doesn't give you back your return. We're so we're back here again, Constantine. I'm, I'm reminded. I don't know if you remember, but uh, the then UN Special Rapporteur for Housing, uh, Leilani Farah, nearly five years ago, wrote to the Irish government and said what they'd done in terms of housing was a breach of the UN's right to the right to housing for adequate housing for people. How are you going to start moving towards it? And Ireland has gone through a one of the biggest increases in the financialization of housing of any country that she had observed in the world. Yeah, well, were... housing, uh, but this is, a, a you know, look, I mean, that you can blame the, blame the Brits for from the good old empire days. Um, we financialized housing ages ago as well. Um, if you look right now, for example, at the innovation space that the Enterprise Ireland, the likes of them are supporting through the government funding in housing finance, it's all about even greater financialization of housing. We're talking yeah. about, I mean, it's actually, I tear my hair out when I hear all these blockchain folks talking about the idea of fractional ownership of homes. So we now not only going to saddle people with 30-year mortgages, but we're also going to actually take part of their home ownership equity, and we're going to list it on a blockchain 
so that some other investors like private equity champions of Great Ireland from the, not the vulture funds, we can call them vulture funds. I mean, because the only country where the word vulture fund is prohibited is Ireland at this stage, you know, uh, but we're going to give it to private equity funds, that fractional ownership of the home. I mean, it's insanity. We have to start recognizing very simple things, okay? Thing number one, Irish banks are not lending for the development. The reason why they are not lending for the development is there are multiple of them, but the number one reason is they face no competition. Pillar banks in Ireland, AIB and Bank of Ireland, have never lent for risky activities in Ireland before until Anglo arrived on the scene and started aggressively lending into the development space. Now, Anglo itself, for its all you know negative things, had one thing brilliantly done. They actually spurred on competition in Ireland. So all of a sudden, other banks, Pillar banks, started lending as well. Okay. The minute Angler was out of the door, all of those banks went back to what they were doing before, not paying on deposits, collecting cheap money, and allocating it to the safest possible activities. Now, there are other issues. There are structural issues in in terms of the market in Ireland. Say, for example, the mismatch between the rural and local development and the city development in Dublin and Cork. And I mentioned that before. And the problem there, of course, is that there is basically very little market in terms of transactions outside of Dublin and Cork and Galway and Limerick. So as a result of that, the banks genuinely have difficulty pricing the risk in those ter- in those areas, yes? That can be addressed somewhat as well, but the problem is that when you have the two pillar banks in a country for decades effectively shine away from doing what they're supposed to do, price risk and lend to risky activities, you're going to end up with a situation where other decision makers in finance become also extremely risk averse. And here by that, I mean actually the likes of Enterprise Ireland and venture capital funds. So as a result of that, the startups in prop tech, startups in construction development and so forth, cannot even get any access to the state funds. And because they can't get any access to the state funds through the Enterprise Ireland, they also cannot therefore get any VC funds because the VCs in Ireland are so bloody conservative. They don't deserve even the label of the VCs. They invest in craziest schemes outside of Ireland. And then in Ireland, they're so conservative that they need Enterprise Ireland to hold their hand to cross the freaking zebra on the lights. I, I suppose I'm reminded too that this this level of, I don't know, what do you call it? Because it's un, it's, it's uncompetitive, Constantine, it is fraud. It is, you know, at the basic end of all of this is, the markets are now more fraudulent than they have been for the last 15 years. Looters in a riot, Martin. Yeah, but we're back to where we were, you know, 2006, 2007. Even Michael Berry, but it, or but, Burry, but, but has now has said the stock market's fucking corrupt. He's betting on it again, going bang again. Do you think that's what's coming? Yeah, no, of course. The difference between the markets that Michael Berry is observing is that those markets are distorted by a different set of factors than they are in Ireland. Okay, So in the United States, the financial markets are distorted by the decades plus, and we're talking about more than 20 years now, more than 23 years now, of ultra-low or suboptimally low interest rates. So as a result of that, the capital costs to which we are accustomed as investors outside of Ireland are so flipping low that you can be, and this is actually goes back to the same business model that Anglo per, mm-hmm. per used. Anglo was operated like a hedge fund with a specialism in development, real estate development. Nothing wrong with that. There's, seriously, there's nothing wrong with having a hedge fund 
that operates in the space of the development. There, there, there is if, the you're, if you're supposed to be a bank. That's uh... <laughs> but they were not taking deposits. Remember that. So that's okay. So they're not really commercial bank as such. Okay. So the real problem with with Anglo was that they actually were pricing their loans at three to five percent instead of fifteen percent, which they should be if they were properly factoring the risk. Okay? But they were never. But they were never. They were never ran. Like I mean, the joke of been running out of out of Fitzy's pocket wasn't too far from the truth in some cases. No, no, uh, I agree with you. Yeah, no. Look, I mean. There is other issues in terms of governance. Don't take me wrong, okay? Mm. But by and large, the business model that Angler was trying to pursue was wrong fundamentally on the side of their pricing. It wasn't wrong as an idea like, hey, listen, you can have it. And there's nothing wrong with a bank, by the way, in real estate, specializing in real estate, as long as it's not operating the deposit schemes and so forth, going bust. Fine. Hey, listen, you know, hedge fund going bust. Do we really care? Do we lose sleep over it? So there's some issues, of course, I'm, I'm being very, if you want, kind of generalist from very high level approach in this view, okay? But there's nothing really wrong from the idea of having, you know, an institution like Anglo specializing in land and enter it, okay? The problem right now in Ireland is that it's very different, yes? It's Ireland's markets are distorted not by the excessive risk taken. In fact, they're distorted by exact opposite of that, lack of risk taken at the point level where the money is, at mm. the banks and also at the government level and at the funding level by the venture capital funds and the likes. So the question, therefore, is what's the difference between Michael Barry's view of the U.S. markets and the Irish markets? And the difference is very fundamental, and it, it can be described by three letters, MNCs, multinational corporations. In the United States, there is no subsidizer of the economy. So as a result of that, if you speculate, you speculate. If you don't speculate, you actually can have only the return of, say, 3 to 4 5%. And there's a big question, of course, and Barry is pretty good on that as well, in terms of whether the U.S. treasuries are speculative or not, how much risk is in those, okay? But by and large, you're looking at 3 to 5% rate of return if you are investing in the United States in a safe activities. So as a result of that, everyone else who wants higher return has to be channeled into the uh, generating returns by taking on risk. In Ireland, you don't take risk. You bring in FDI. Mm -hmm. You bring multinational corporations. So as a result of the, the entire structure of the market in Ireland, from the domestic but, economy... But we wins, incentivize them, we subsidize them, and give them... Like, it's literally... Yeah, so so, so yeah. you, let's let's refer to something as simple as back to housing again. We'll, let, we'll give you untaxed profits on a development site that we're going to give you subsidies to help uh, build out... And then we're going to give you deals to build it out. And then we're going to rent them back off you for 25 years at a market rate. And at the end of 25 years, we won't even own them. You'll still own them. We'll have done all of this. And you and we're going to give you a guaranteed return of, say, 4% per year because we're going to say you're in a, a rent pressure zone where we will cap the rents at this amount. So it's, 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 it's money for old rope. It's not only that, but as you actually, your conclusion there, the tail end of that, when we start then to compensate for the subsidies that we're given to them by mounting on additional controls in terms of what they can price and how they can price and everything else, you actually lock in the entire mechanism then. Okay. Mm. Up until then, up until so the government gives one developer a subsidy or something else, there is another developer who can come in. They can undercut, they can come in perhaps on a better product innovation or something else yes they mm. can offer a different model you know whatever okay 
they can try to compete on the price against the subsidy and the support. The same with tax subsidy and everything else. But the minute you actually lock in the rent in terms of say, you know, this is a sensitive area and therefore you cannot increase the prices and everything else, you then lock the system with the insiders in. Yeah, and you've said that this is up to, and, and you factored out for 20, ter, for 30 years, 25 Correct. years or whatever. That's Correct. crazy. So, I mean, the idea here is not that we are facing the Michael Barris market. We're facing the market of Fiona Fall, Fiona Gale, where you get into the tent, you close the tent, and then within the tent, you keep dividing the pie. And then, of course, you impose, as a result of that, costs and transfer costs onto the people who are actually paying for all of that. So the punter in the end pays one way or another, whether they pay through higher rents or they pay through higher taxes necessary to sustain the subsidies and so forth, or they pay to the likes of the ESB who then transfers money to the um, to the government through the um, dividends. And so, you know, there's different ways by which the slice gets, sli- uh, the, the pie gets sliced. The problem is it's the same people who are baking it. Therefore, there is no new pie. I've been... And I was thinking, I'm going to ask the two question. And I was thinking about this last night in advance of this podcast. I, I'm i trying to remember, was there anything the government have ever bailed out that was worth bailing out? And nothing comes to mind. Nothing. Not the way they bailed it out. No, I mean, but there is, there is, yeah. I mean, I, I was thinking about the insurance. I was thinking about banks. Uh, is there anything that has actually ever worked for the people? Um, well, I mean, the, the the claim by the government was at the time and still is that if the banks, for example, were not bailed out, you would have had a structural uh, collapse of the banking system. So as a result of that, the general ordinary punters would have lost their deposits and so forth. We've been down that road. It's not necessary. It was not necessary to resolve the banking problems the way we resolved them. We chose to resolve them in a certain way. Um, I mean, one of the biggest probably problems today in the property market and in the banking sector that we are uh, you know, living with still is the legacy of NAMA, the legacy of risk taken, um, the legacy of corruption, um, the fact that NAMA corruption has never been resolved properly. Um, the fact that still now, playing out, it's still playing out. Oh yeah, there, of course it is still playing there, out. There, there are people involved in 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 deals purchasing land right now from the LDA that knew the prices when they locked them in when they worked for NAMA um, over less than a decade ago. You know this, um, and and to Martin's point on the bailouts part, part, Martin, my big fear is, and constantly may correct me now, and but like, this is a prediction I made myself. Um, in early in the summer in in June, said that there'll be a tax break incentive scheme for uh, in the budget that's actually a bailout for commercial property. And here we are now, yeah. Um, facing into a, a piece today showing seventeen percent of the commercial property units are now empty. There's there's uh they've all this they're developing out these units that we don't need, we don't have capacity for, and the state are considering what ways that they can underwrite these. This is another form of a bailout, and <laughs> it's wash wash rinse repeat, and and so. Um, could we get value for money? Yeah, we could if we if we we may turned around and said to the to the to the builders and construction, let's 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 change the use from commercial to residential and and um and maybe you know different commercial units or whatever. There's other ways of doing this, but Jesus, we need to get creative beyond. Uh, and we need to we need to subsidize. Well, we these. subsidized that in the first place. You know, yes. In, you know, so basically. Uh, it was, you know, you could see the writing on the wall back in 2021 
that the commercial developments should be stopped at that stage. The only way they endured in Ireland, but also in the rest of parts of Europe, especially in the UK, for example, in London, is by changes in environmental regulations for office spaces. Mm-hmm. So as a result of that, you know, we kind of superficially boosted the new construction uh, over and above retrofitting because retrofitting is more expensive. And as a result of that, we, of course, increased vastly the vacancy rates in the lower grade office spaces. Now, the problem with that is that low grade office spaces are also notoriously difficult to uh, convert to other uses. Uh, so as a result of that, we're actually stuck with that right now. The problem for us now is to decide, do we let that go bankrupt or do we try to do NAMA 2.0 in that, you know, some sort of a rescue by the government? And of course, the Irish government default is let's try to rescue. Why? Well, because we go back to the good rugby schools. But I also yeah, people I, involved, I, people my, holding the bag are the friends and family. My last, my last piece on banks, because we do really need to move on, is that the bailout of banks that took place was, as the bank run happened and collapses happened in the US this year was bigger than what happened during the global financial crisis. Just that the central banks acted a lot quicker to underwrite them, and uh, you know when you say there's fears for for u.s treasury and all of course there are they've been buying all of these uh the, these bonds and these debt they've been underwriting all of this constantine so so the system is certainly um it may seem okay it's like you know it's like the duck cruising along the surface but the legs kicking like foot below the surface because they are it, it, there's a lot of strain out there right there was now. a fundamental difference in the bailout this time around compared to the bailout that americans ever pursued in the past okay including during the global financial crisis this time around they bailed out uninsured depositors as well mm-hmm. and in the case of the several of those banks um especially silicon valley bank it was very clear that this is about highly connected uh politically leaning in certain direction um you know basically venture capital firms of yep. the silicon valley whom they were bailing out. It wasn't about the punters. It certainly wasn't about employment. The idea that those companies, those startups actually employ large numbers of people is a complete and utter nonsense. And even worse nonsense that those people would be sitting on unemployment benefits if they were to lose their jobs in those startups. There's a great demand for tech workers in the Silicon Valley and on the whole Western US corridor territory, as well as Eastern seaboard of the United States. There's absolutely no problem with them finding jobs, and there's absolutely no reason why those people should be bailed out. Well, look, we so we need we need we need to we need to move on because I want to want to go really quickly, Constantine. Um, U.S. economy headline figures look good, you know. There's um, but that's does not telling the real story. We know there's huge oh, problems in yeah, infrastructure, it's... but you've also put that. I think you put it up the other day, and it was interesting because it's. You were the man who told us if you want to if you want to see how an economy is doing, you don't often have to you don't really have to look at much many of the statistics. Sometimes you just want to go out and look at the evidence of your own eyes and what you see. And you tweeted about one of your neighbors who has uh, forever had the uh, a forever Trump fan and the flags coming down. Yeah, yeah, no, that's an interesting one. It's not quite my neighbor. It's uh, you know, it's about um, fifteen or so miles away from me. But I drive by his farm um, every day to work. And so, um, yes, he used to have, I call him my trumpometer. And uh, my trumpometer used to have this display of flags from American flag to every freaking, you know, um, armed forces flag and so forth. But then he also had Trump 
flags. And there were, you know, several of them, different varieties. And he would have about, you know, ranging during different periods of time between, say, 10 and 5 or 6. And every time Trump would be in trouble with his base, such as when he endorsed, for example, vaccines for COVID, you know, the Trump flags would be removed. And then they would come back. And when Trump was indicted for the first time, uh, back in the beginning of this year, what was really striking is that Trump flag stayed and all of the American flags came down. Interestingly enough, all of the neighborhood there of the farms, you know, and there's a big farms, mm. uh, most of them are Trump supporters as well. And they would they all took down the American flags. For about a week, there were no American flags at all. Now, after the latest indictment, what's interesting is that all of the Trump flags are gone. And instead, they were replaced, you know, by anti-Biden flags. Mm. So it seems like there is some part of the base of Trump that is shifting away from, you know, El Duce support, no matter what, and kind of like still staying anti-Biden, of course, because they're hardcore Republicans, but they're not yet decided what they're going to do. And this, you mentioned the economy of the United States and the economy of the United States is so uncertain, so weird, so covered with the fog of politics today that it actually resembles what happened during the debate between the Republican um, uh, contestants for the uh, nomination. For the second place. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Effectively, it is a debate for the second place. And if you remember, there was a moment there when Mike Pence and Vivek Ramaswamy go at each other and, you know, Pence goes, and this is actually a direct quote, uh, we are not looking for a new national identity. The American people are the most faith-filled, freedom-loving, idealistic, hard-working people uh, the world has ever known. And then Vivek turns around and says, it's not morning in America. We live in a dark moment. And we have to confront the fact that we are in an internal sort of called cultural civil war. So the American economy is just like that. Every statistic you take. Well, I just want to to remind listeners before before you go on. Every single person who, every commentator said Vivek Ramachami won that debate hands down uh, across the board. That's true. Absolutely. I mean, like I, I watched the debate. Uh, now he's a sleek car salesman, effectively. Yeah, yeah. used car salesman. Okay, the guy has some really balmy ideas, some racist ideas, a mixture of you know kind of populist ideas and some actually perhaps kind of reasonable as well ideas. You know, to throw in. But when you put him again, you know, Isaac Hutchinson. I mean, my God, the guy looks like you know he's dead, like a walking dead. Okay, or the you know like the never alive Ron DeSantis, you know, <laughs> when you put him against that kind of, or Mike Pence, I mean, Mike Pence is just a creep, to be honest, you know, like, I mean, like you, you, you listen to the guy, you go like, you know, there's absolutely no N- way anyone Nikki, is going Nick, to Haley did. Nikki Haley did okay. Nikki Haley did okay. She did okay, but um, she's a total lightweight, and you yeah, know, and but you and know. again, only wants to be maybe maybe be vice president or or vice or you know the vice president. Yeah, candidate. Good luck to her. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> so I mean, like, look, I mean, the hard Republicans are not going to vote for Nikki Haley, um, and I, like Nikki Haley doesn't have, you know, I mean, well, perhaps actually, look, let's give her some room to develop as well in terms of her ideas. We'll see what she's going to come up with as long as she remains in the race. You know, perhaps there might be something interesting. But back to going back to the American economy, that's Please. actually is the exactly example. Every statistic you take, every part of the economy, from Biden's success story of manufacturing or the jobs creation and unemployment statistics 
you have these kind of bright, shining examples of really good statistics and at the same time, terrible stuff in the same sector. So I, I can walk you through some of those. Like if you think, for example, um, unemployment is a great example. Unemployment rate is 3.5% right now. This is September 2019 level, the same. So that's good, yes? Continued unemployment claims, 1.7 million latest figures we have, about 200,000 higher than 2019. Okay-ish, not bad, but not something to you know write to mommy about, yes? 5.84 million folks unemployed officially, slightly higher than the bottom of pre-COVID era, back 2019 again. Uh, not bad, yes? But what's duration of unemployment? 20.6 weeks, which is the average number of weeks in unemployment. That is low by post-global financial crisis standards, but it is higher than at any time from 1948 through 2008. Okay, That's pretty terrible. So there's something permanently bad happening within the unemployment, right? Labor force participation rate, 62.6% which is, well, below pre-COVID-19 levels of 63.3%, and is basically at the lowest level of post-global financial crisis recession recovery, which was back the lowest point at October 2015. That is pretty terrible. Um, last time things were this bad outside of the global financial crisis era, and its effects was fall 1977. So by same market, labor market, we are at the really shining great times in terms of the unemployment, really at the 1977 flipping levels uh, for the um, labor force participation rate. The same, by the way, if you look at manufacturing, that's another Bidenomics success story, the revival of manufacturing in the United States. If you look at the headline numbers in terms of new orders, in terms of the actual output uh, in manufacturing, it's all straight up. Great news, you know, very categorical jump. We are at the strengths in terms of the historical time series. But then when you strip out the price effects of that and you convert what they are being produced and, um, and you know, back to the real dollars, mm -hmm. uh, controlling for inflation, it's all just crashes straight down. It's what you said earlier when you were describing LA and the golf courses that there is this as tony says a golf course worth five billion but if you don't put fences around it homeless people are going to move into it it that is the that really to me that describes america perfectly at the moment and and the other thing of course is that we haven't mentioned is this huge opioid uh, epidemic in america which is is reminiscent of where china used to be when one in four people was addicted to opioids it's you know it's really scary stuff going on there are there is a very dark side to america at the moment extremely dark side to it there is a frightening side to the american story as well there I mean, you mentioned the opioids that's part of the drivers but not the only driver of uh, life expectancy in the united states life expectancy in the united states is now below kosovo and algeria mm. i mean this is the lowest amongst all of the developed economies and we spend more than any developed economy in terms of any metric, whether it's on a per capita basis or on the overall, of course, numbers overall, on healthcare. So United States is not a healthy society by any possible means. It's not a healthy economy by any possible means. It's no longer that shining you know, city on top of the hill that everyone wants to aspire to. But mythology of that, as Mike Pence's quote that I gave you, um, illustrates is certainly still very strong there. We still believe that the American people are the most faith-filled, freedom-loving, idealistic, hard-working people in the world that the world has ever known. 
I mean, you know, that's the reality of it. And well, the reality is, as we saw in the last 10 days in the Rio Grande River in, in, in Texas, boys left floating in the river, Martin. I don't know if you saw this. And in between the boys, Constant, you probably have oh, I did see it. circular saws. Yes, that's right. To, to well, we have a, we, we know that the uh, the Coast Guard, sorry, not Coast Guard, the uh, border, uh, no, sorry, not the federal border guard, but the uh, state police in Texas yes. were given uh, instructions to actually push children and women back mm. into Rio Grande if and, they want to land on the shore um, in the United States. This is our biggest neighbor. This is the neighbor with whom we have the free trade agreement. This is the neighbor who is strategically seen as the second most important ally United States ever had. And we treat people coming from the uh, from their side, not necessarily citizens of that uh, of the country itself. Of course, they're not necessarily Mexi- uh, citizens of Mexico, um, but they are coming from that side of the border um, with this. And that's the state of Texas, and we have the state of Florida, which is pretty much the same as well. And the entire southern corridor is becoming like that, and Arizona is moving in that direction too. Yeah, it's 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 a terrifying, terrifying thought. But they're they're recovering bodies from circular saws, trying to trying yeah. to cross the river to. And as you said, like we spoke to Nicholas de Leal about what's happening in Ecuador at the moment, what's happening under Bukele's um, El Salvador, and these areas where people are moving up. Then, as you said, through the corridor, and this is what they're being met with. Really quickly, the last time we were on, we spoke about the um, attempted coup, and we kind of spoke a bit t- tongue in cheek about who's going to be the first guy to go up to the second floor and fall out of a window, whether it was going to be um, Prigozhin or Putin himself was going to was going to be pushed. And you said it may actually help him consolidate power. Mm. Before I get, I want to just put this in the, in the frame and maybe you can tell me I'm wrong. The mood music out of Russia is obviously not, hasn't really changed much in terms of the special operation, except for he's removed certain generals from the field. Um, it, we've also seen, huge hikes in interest rates for uh, credit in in Russia I think it's gone from what was it 4% to like 12% in in yep. in in a few weeks and the cost of living crisis that we've all been suffering from are now is now starting to bite do I believe that that's going to affect Putin's um his hold on power I don't know but but Constantine you've been you've been observing this this is you know you were born into the USSR yourself how do you how how do you read this the last little the last little while uh, following on, and one thing tongue in cheek, the 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 passing of the uh, the restaurateur who unfortunately got on the wrong side of um, the, uh, the 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 West's last great hope for uh, a, a diplomatic solution is now dead. And I say that because I know too many people wanted to rebrand a war criminal as um, as a good guy. Oh, not just wanted. Uh, New York Post actually headlined the whole event that the dissident. Mm, dissident. Know, that was the word. Russian dissident has been, you know, killed off by Putin. You know, yeah, the guy is. Sorry, a, and BBC said notable moments of Prigozhin's life. Notable. Yes, yes. As in, like, you know, torturing the prisoners of war from Ukraine and things like that. Doing, yeah, totally. I mean, like, you know, notable moments. Exactly. Uh, the guy was a monumental creep. The problem is that, of course, the guy posed um challenge not so much to Putin. Um, but rather to the Minister of Defense and the Russian Armed Forces, and uh, he lost. And there's, there was absolutely no question. Uh, there were a lot of kind of conspiracy theories um, around the, say, Arlington and Washington, D.C. think tanks going on that the coup wasn't really a coup, you know, that it was just all staged, it was a, you know, false flag operation by Kremlin. 
and that, of course, you know, Prigozhin now has been moved into Belarus in order to challenge and put pressure on NATO in Poland and blah, 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 so, so forth, okay? All of that is pretty clear, not the case. There was a, effectively a psychotic episode on behalf of Prigozhin where he decided that he's going to go and challenge the Minister of Defense and the Russian Armed Forces. He half of the way went through and then kind of got, you know, scared. Uh, he thought that he made the deal with his genuinely declared friend, Vladimir Putin, um, which was actually quite shocking because Prigozhin would be Shoigu and Prigozhin, who are the two most antagonistic figures in all of that, you know, summer of this year confrontation, um, of course, are the only two friends known to us that are the friends of Putin. Okay, uh, they share together vacations. They share together private moments before as well, um, and of course, they all both benefited and all. So when they went at each other, Putin had to make the choice, and he made the choice in terms of consolidation of security apparatus and power. He made a choice to support the Russian armed forces and Shoigu, and as a result of that, you know, Prigozhin now falls out of the sky. That's the, just the reality of it. Um, the end result: Putin is more strong right now. As a result of that, economic challenges are there. Uh, they're building up very gradually. Uh, we're seeing up and down in terms of the current account surpluses in Russia and external trade flows. Imports are kind of rising, which is generally a sign, by the way, when talking about the interest rates rising. Interest rates went up primarily because ruble has gone through a hundred to a dollar exchange rate, which is symbolic. Uh, but not as actually worrying to the Russian government, generally speaking. Uh, what was worrying to the Russian government is that the Russian trade dynamics has changed this year. In last year, there was a very sharp contraction in terms of imports, and at the same time, shallower contraction in terms of exports. So as a result of that, the foreign currency revenues that the Russian government was earning were actually pretty well behaved. Uh, this year, what we're seeing is that the exports are shrinking somewhat, but the imports are starting to recover back again. Now, that means the domestic economy is actually in a bit of a ruder health than we expected it to be, or the government expected it to be, and people, companies, and the likes are demanding imports. Those imports are more expensive, so there's they're more expensive because they have to come not directly from Europe uh, or to a much lesser extent United States or Asia, but through the countries of the Central Asia um, and kind of the likes of Turkey, for example, who have seen tremendous increases in terms of imports from the EU, for example, uh, over the last few months. And that's, of course, is the flow of goods that is being shipped out of Turkey, through Turkey, from Europe into Russia. So as a result of that, because of the demand for imports have risen, because the economy is doing fairly well, or better than it was expected to do, um, the ruble value has collapsed and tanked. So they raised interest rates. Um, Russia is pretty accustomed to that idea. Uh, most of the capital allocation in Russia happens through the state-influenced or state-controlled banks. So as a result of that, it's almost like China. Interest rates might rise, but if you are running a favorable enterprise, you will get access to capital. Let's put it this way. That's, I mean, okay, so, so like... We, we, I know people in in Moscow will tell you like you know new businesses are opening new um, mm -hmm. businesses that closed that uh, after the war began or the special military operation began it's a war um uh, they they closed down and now they're reopening under different names there there's demand as you said for for luxury items again um there's you know so so yeah that 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 all tallies but at the same time 
it means that the the West, as uh, uh, that awful broad term, is locking in now to what is just going to be an ungodly long war. Um, you know, and, and the open question here, there's at the beginning of the summer, there was only one open question on that, and that was the Ukrainian counteroffensive. Yeah, we now have you know, kind of, we, we can't really make any conclusions, draw any conclusions right now. There is a lot of noise about that, the, you know, the counteroffensive has failed. More recently, in the last week or so, there has been more noise coming from Ukraine saying basically, no, no, we're succeeding, it's just taken a longer time. So, in, in very basic terms, it's too early to tell. Okay, but the big new question opening up behind it is that there is a rumor now of the Russian counter counteroffensive, hmm. and that that is supposedly being planned for the second half of September into October. Difficult to say what logistics of that will be, whether it's going to materialize or not. But in very basic terms, the only scenario that prevents us from having another miserable winter, uh, whereby it's just a war of attrition through the trench warfare happening. Um, is those two developments, the Ukrainian counteroffensive development versus the potential for the Russian counter-counteroffensive. It's up to the military in the next you know, month, month and a half, um, in terms of what can be done and what will be done. And then we can retake stay, stoke and you know see what the potential is for the winter from there on. But basically, in, large, in, you know, in broader terms, yes, we are into a longer-term conflict, whether it's going to be a frozen conflict with very few deaths and very little of, uh, you know, if you want military activity, or it's going to be a more kind of a conflict that we've been seeing up to now with the waves of, you know, attacks from each side um, that are not gaining any significant ground. Um, they're just grinding through the through people and through material. Um, that's an open question there. It's very sad, really, Constantine. Like, I, I, I know it's very hard for me to look at it and say um, people should die. I mean, I really think that there, there should be some move towards peace. I don't like to see anybody dying in any war. And to see that the, the rate of young men dying, particularly Ukrainian young men, is just, it's just abominable. It really is. It is. But on the other hand, there is a very legitimate argument to be made as well um, by by the other side to that argument, that in order to actually start any sort of the, you know, if you want peace process, you're going to have to have the Russian forces re uh, removing themselves from the territory of Ukraine. The, I think that um, that kind of momentum is starting to gain more recognition uh, that we do need to have some sort of a peace process going on. The question right now, even before the question was uh, literally remove the Russian forces from the territory of Ukraine, I think that now the conversations, especially in Europe, are becoming more about like, what do we mean by that? Mm. Is Crimea part of that? Is, um, you know, part of Donbass are part of that or not? I don't have an answer and I can't really offer an answer because look, I mean, I'm, you know, look, uh, you know, by all intents and purposes, you know, I'm half Russian ethnically. I, you know, I have connection with Russia as well. So from my point of view, I have no moral authority to tell Ukrainian people what to do. All I can say is that in my view, Russia should withdraw from the Ukrainian territory. And then it's up to Ukraine to determine when they go and to go into the peace process and negotiations. So that's really all I can say. But I agree with you. It is horrendous to see. Uh, people in Ukraine, people in Russia as well, dying. Mm -hmm. I mean, there is no, you know... 
we talk about it as the lifeblood of Ireland, and we recognise how important the the the, the same demographic is to look, making Martin, a modern Ireland. Martin, this week, this week we were blessed to to read stories, and I mean it in a nice, positive way, to read stories about young Ukrainian teenagers who were here eighteen months and did their leave inserts and got really good grades, and are you know are gonna are and in all truth may never leave here. May yeah. uh, may uh, put down roots here and 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 are welcome in 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 Ireland, but then we also know on the flip side that there are both Russians and Americans in, uh, and and Ukrainians in mass graves. Being yeah. you know that that they're that they, there's young men that'll never you know I go back to T. Lawrence's we're we're firing them into the flames and for what? So you know I absolutely I just support war as it is. But at the same time, I understand, you know, it's not for us to judge on on where the who draws the boundaries and where, where it goes. But but, um, you know, it, it's, I like it's, I just remember when it seemed so entrenched uh, up north and it seemed that there was just no way through and no way forward. But, you know, they made a peace of sorts or they, or they ceased killing each other to a great degree of sorts. And it did seem impossible to get to that point. But it was found, and it was when you, found. When you scale the, say, for example, the violence that was in the North and the duration of that conflict in the North, uh, when you scale it to the relative populations and the sizes of the countries involved now, you're talking about we're in the very beginning of the troubles, you know, comparatively. So that critical mass of uh, external influence that has compelled the north uh, northern you know basically politics to converge on some sort of the process of resolution some sort of the peace process itself is not there yet there is also no clarity in terms of how that resolution that process of resolution can work um there is no institutional structure that would guarantee um, say, for example, the Russian grievances are being addressed, but also, of course, the Ukrainian security being addressed and so forth. So there's a, you know, we're at the very beginning of the process, if we had to use the Northern Ireland analogy, uh, where things were not seen as feasible to be resolved through the peaceful means, where things were not seen as feasible to be resolved through the continuity of Northern Ireland within the UK and Northern Ireland uh, Union. So there's a lot of issues there, of course, right? Um, the, again, you know, if you think about it, you know, the dominant powers at play within the Northern Ireland, you know, what they call conflict or civil war, whatever else you want to call it, um, in that process itself, were much larger than the participants in it. Even the Republic of Ireland, small country, back then even smaller than it is today in terms of its population, still dwarfs in comparison the um, Catholic uh, population of Northern Ireland, for example, yes, not to mention the UK versus the Unionists um, in Northern Ireland. There is nothing like that to compel Russians. There is nothing like that to uh, directly influence even Ukraine, even though Ukraine is much smaller than Russia as well. Okay, there is a lot of uh, institutional capital which is missing as well there. So the. I don't know what the answer is. It's almost the most frustrating issue. I can offer you solutions and ideas on how to help the housing market in Ireland mm. uh, or resolve the banking crisis in Ireland. But to me, in case of Ukraine, it's fairly straight you know, forward. The first steps can only take place when Russia stops 
hostilities and withdraws from Ukrainian territory. Perhaps it can be reached by Russia withdrawing from the eastern Ukraine and still staying in Crimea. I don't know that. Perhaps yeah. um, it can be reached by even Russia stopping hostilities and starting to withdraw. I don't know. Um, but it's up to, you know, I, I'm, you know, like as much as I don't like the idea of being with the NATO on this, but I am with the NATO in terms of one thing. It's up to Ukrainians to determine what their fate will be in the future. They need to figure out the mechanism and they need to figure out when it is the right terms for them to engage. Um, and of course, Russia needs to uh, completely radically change what it's doing there. Thanks for that, Constantine. We've probably gone quite a bit over time, but as always, it is a pleasure to talk to you. Um, we'd like to see more of you, of course. We, we're, we're great advocates for having you around. So thank you very much for having this conversation with us, Constantine. It's been very enjoyable. We've covered an awful lot. Thank you. Thanks, Martin. It's always a pleasure joining you too. I'm looking, it's always great. One of these days, I'm going to get the, the. I'm training for the marathon in October, but now next year I have to aim for the Leadville 100. And if you're still in Colorado, you can do it with me. <laughs> <laughs> You'd have to unleash a whole bear running after me. <laughs> it's it's only a hundred miles across the Rockies, folks. It's it's it's. Yeah, it's I have a, a better a idea, Constantine. Come on over, and we'll have a few beers somewhere. That's that's a better idea. I think. <laughs> awesome. Listen, folks, we leave it there. Thanks for listening. Thanks again to Constantine and also to, a little bit to Martin. Talk to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Tony and Martin, Martin and Tony, speaking to interesting people only. It's the Echo Chamber podcast. Subscribe now on Patreon.